things that have a beginning need a cause. And if we're talking about the universe or all existence having a beginning, well, that means there's something outside our universe that caused it. And so that has spiritual implications to it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or... In my best attempt at speaking ancient Hebrew, Bereshit barat Elohim, et hashamayam va'et ha'eretz. The impact of this opening verse from the Book of Beginnings, the Bible's Book of Genesis, upon Western civilization and beyond is incalculable. It has inspired the scientific enterprise as we know it. From Johannes Kepler to Galileo, Newton, Robert Boyle, James Clerk Maxwell, and so many others over the centuries. Oxford mathematician Dr. John Lennox, in his book, Can Science Explain Everything?, observes, quote, According to 100 Years of Nobel Prizes by Baruch Abba Shalev, a review of Nobel Prizes awarded between 1901 and 2000, 65.4% of Nobel Prize laureates have identified Christianity in its various forms as their religious preference. 423 prizes. Overall, Christians have won a total of 78.3 of all the Nobel Prizes in Peace, 72.5 in Chemistry, 65.3 in Physics, 62% in Medicine, 54% in Economics, and 49.5% of all Literature Awards. End quote. And if contemporary scientific calculations about our universe are correct, it appears the best minds in the sciences of the heavens today have stumbled upon a rather curious, if not disturbing for some, possibility that our universe did in fact have a beginning. In fact, according to our guest this week on Good Heavens, astrophysicist and researcher at Reasons to Believe, Dr. Jeff Zwierink, we have every reason to believe the science behind the origin of the universe is far more than just a mere possibility. It seems to be as close to a scientific fact as anything could be labeled as such. Jeff and I discuss some highlights from Jeff's 2019 book, Escaping the Beginning. In it, Jeff outlines the background behind models of the universe, beginning with the idea that the universe is eternal, from Einstein's general and special relativity theories to steady-state theories to the Big Bang, inflationary models, quantum theories, and even multiverses. 
Jeff proposes that the best models we have for the universe all point back to a beginning of space, time, matter, and energy. He also carefully examines current alternative models that attempt to circumvent a beginning of the universe. Jeff concludes that despite the best efforts of many of his fellow cosmologists and astrophysicists to get around a beginning of the universe, none are successful in avoiding a beginning. And as I was reading Jeff's book, I was struck by how each of the alternative models in some form or fashion ended up positing some kind of unseen structure that is powerful enough to generate a universe, infinite or eternal in its ontology, and in some models, conceivably able to bring a universe into existence from virtually nothing at all. These models seem to affirm what Romans 1 says, that what God has made reflects his invisible attributes. Through the fabric of space and time, through the beauty and arrangement of the created cosmos, God has revealed to all mankind his power and eternality. As the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Colossians, the universe was created through and for God's glory in Christ Jesus. Quote, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. End quote. In summary, it appears the current scientific understanding of the cosmos sounds a lot like what the late agnostic astronomer Dr. Robert Jastrow famously said, quote, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. End quote. So come along with Jeff and I as we fellowship with the band of theologians whose understanding of the cosmos does indeed seem to have been affirmed by the best minds in science today. As we began our conversation, I asked Jeff what got him interested in studying the universe. Jeff's Weirink. Well, I, I have been interested in uh, science for as long as I can remember. Uh, my dad was a chemist, uh, taught at a local university in the hometown where I grew up. Um, and in fact, one of my earliest memories in life was I was sitting at the top of the stairs in our duplex. My dad was downstairs and he was he and a colleague of his were giving a chemistry demonstration to a group that my older brother was involved with. And mm. this is, I was three years old when this was going on. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, things where you take a, a ball and dip it in liquid nitrogen, throw it on the wall and it shatters. Right. You can mix chemicals and make cool noises, weird shapes, weird flavors, all sorts of stuff. And I just loved that uh, you can do things with these chemicals and with things in the world. And, and it, it almost look, it looks like it's magic, but yet it's all understandable. And I've just loved the idea that you can understand how things work. And so that's, that's, if you ask me what a scientist is, is a, a scientist is someone who says, how does this work? And then goes out to figure out how does it actually work? Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So you had a, you had a, 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 a calling, if you will, at a, at a very young age being enthralled by science. I really have. And, you know, I mean, I love the work that my dad did. I love chemistry. I got into high school. I took two years of chemistry in high school, loved chemistry, but uh, happened to take a physics class my senior year of high school. And as much as I loved chemistry, I loved physics. And so yeah. um, just decided, okay, I'm going to go into physics when I got into college. And so I was studying physics in college. 
And believe it or not, when I was a sophomore in college, there was a fellow that came and talked about how science and the Christian faith work together. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'm a Christian and I'm a scientist and that makes sense. And so it got me thinking about how do science and Christianity work together and mm-hmm. recognize that the intersection of science and Christianity happens a little more in, in uh, astrophysics than it did in straight physics at the time. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll pick up an astronomy minor and then went in, and, went in and got a PhD in astrophysics. So that's that's how I ended up in astrophysics. But I, you know, really, it's just a love of science. It was a matter of which one. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah, I, I talked to and I, I've read, we've interviewed a lot of scientists who have um, – the same story. Um, I know that uh, I've just for our book. I was doing research on Bob Williams, who was the director of the Hubble of the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute in the '90s and was responsible for the first deep field uh, adventure. Uh, but Bob tells the story about uh, having a paper route and wanting to save up for his first telescope. You know, and and then he was, uh, you know, here he is as an adult in charge of the world's most phenomenal telescope. I mean, what a dream come true! So. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting to see even in even in secular science. You hear, uh, I just read a book by uh, uh, an astronomer, Emma Chapman, and uh, Emma was talking about her love of the universe when she was very young. You know, so I think her words were, "The universe was calling to me," or something like that. But but you sense this idea that you know, in, in the Christian life, we have this idea that that God does call us, and he he can call us at an early age and gift us and abilities uh, with the skills and the abilities to uh, to navigate this world. So, Jeff, it's great to have somebody like yourself in the sciences because today as you know that our culture is absorbed by uh i would guess what we might call the authority of science that uh, uh, it seems to be for a lot of people and especially a lot of skeptics that i talk to the only way to know things um but um but your book um, is is really this isn't just a apologetic fluff, right? That you're not an apologist who's dabbling <laughs> in cosmology. You you know this, and and yet you are you're <laughs> as some of my atheist friends, and you're still a believer. How is that possible? Um, but to get into your book, it is called Escaping the Beginning, and if I may colloquially put how I've understood it in in astrophysical terms, it seems Jeff that that the origin of the universe with the standard Big Bang model is kind of like a, a, a theoretical mass, supermassive black hole from not even uh, modern cosmology can escape. It seems like there is a concerted effort, according to what you're saying, uh, of a lot of people trying to build models that escape the beginning. Uh, why do you think, it, from a purely scientific perspective for just a second, why all the concerted effort to to try to go around the standard model of our universe having a beginning. Is this a scientific endeavor, do you think, at heart? Or do you think that this is really a, a more philosophical, spiritual issue that we don't want a beginning? How do you view that? I actually think it's both. Um, you know, as, as a physicist, one of the things that as I have been trained in physics and learned more and more about it, one of the things that is very important, you'd almost might say dear to physicists, is this idea of symmetries. You know, I don't know how much, how many physics classes you've had, but you've got all these conservation laws, conservation of energy, mm-hmm. uh, conservation of momentum, um, you know, and they're taught, well, well, this is, this quantity is always conserved. Well, wasn't until I was a little bit further into physics before I realized that all of those conservation laws are ultimately predicated around a symmetry in the universe. Mm. The reason why uh, momentum is conserved is related to you can make a there, there's a, a symmetry about space. So if you move from here to there, 
there's nothing that's fundamentally changed. And so the amount of momentum you have has to be the same in all situations. And so, uh, you know, you talk about that conservation of energy. Well, the conservation of energy is that same sort of symmetry only applied to time, that everywhere you are, there's the same amount of energy. And so in some sense, or the reason why this is a, a physics, a scientific issue, is that if there's a beginning, we've broken a symmetry. And uh, symmetry, like I said, symmetries are important. And having a broken symmetry or a symmetry that we thought was there but isn't is, you know, kind of a scientifically disturbing idea at some level. Um, mm. And so that's why I do think it is actually a scientific issue. But I also think it's a philosophical, spiritual issue because when th- things that have a beginning need a cause, and if we're talking about the universe or all existence having a beginning, well, that means there's something outside our universe that caused it. And so that has spiritual implications to it. And so I think it's it's a both and. It's not an either or. Okay. Yeah, that's that, that's kind of the, the gist that I felt in, in reading. And what I've done in my own research in reading your book, um, well, especially with your examples of, of Stephen Hawking and um, um, – you know the, the models that he's come up with. He and Leonard Mladenov or Mladenov have conspired to to write this book about we don't need God, um, and, and so you see the concerted effort in, in people like Hawking and 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 I've read uh, Leonard Susskind. Uh, we've had uh, Dr. Lawrence Krauss. We've actually engaged with him in person on our book club uh, last year, and uh, I. It was really interesting because he's been – I know Dr. Krauss has been through a lot, especially criticism from his book, A Universe from Nothing, which uh, he kind of takes to task <laughs> theologians and philosophers and says, uh, you know, we're experts in nothing and all of this. And he's joking and he's a little haughty and, and chagrined and chuffed about things. But uh, talking to him, you know, 10 years after his book and listening to him, before we wrapped up the book, he said, look – uh, the book club, he said, look, you know, all I know is this, basically, the, the universe, first there was nothing, and then there was something. And so his book is an attempt to explain that, but but really, it was the closest thing that I've ever heard from a skeptic who knows his science about creation ex nihilo. Um, of course, he doesn't concede God, but he admits pretty strongly that there was nothing, and then there was something. But Dr. Krauss's use of Nothing really wasn't a fair – there's kind of a, some sophistry going on there. Um, do you find, Jeff, in, in the current uh, attempts to circumvent uh, standard Big Bang cosmology, um, do you find this nothing hypothesis to be popular or is that kind of gone by the wayside? What is the – if it's not that, what's the leading contending uh, alternative for um, um, circumventing our, the origin of our universe? Well, it, it seems like uh, there are kind of a, a number, you know, kind of two or three different avenues. And, and I think they relate to what are really just kind of an exhaustive list of how do you how do you explain that? Uh, you know, the, the fact that we're here needs an explanation. And so mm-hmm. um, one of those explanations is that the physical realm has just always existed forever. And so how that plays out scientifically is that either time actually does extend back to past infinity. And, you know, as you go back, we have this, uh, you know, as you run, you run our time and our universe backwards, you get to this place where it seems like there's a singularity or a beginning or something. 
And so one of the efforts is to say, all right, well, maybe that's just an artifact of we don't have a proper theory of quantum or quantum theory of gravity. And so when we get that, what we'll find is that thing that looked like a beginning was really just a phase that are that that the physical realm went through and you get to the other side and you'll find that time just continues to go on uh, all the way back to past infinity. So in other words, the, the reality or the brute existence, the thing that just is, is the physical world. And we're just one of the, you know, in the long history of all that's been there, we're just one of the configurations of atoms that have popped up and we're here to witness it and have this interesting discussion about how it all came about. And so that sort of phenomena or that sort of way of looking at it puts uh, matter as eternal. Uh, mm-hmm. And by matter, I'm just using that to refer to the sum space of space, time, matter and energy and however it's configured. And so <clears throat> it may well be that, you know, you go back and you go through this quantum quantum gravity era where things get squashed to a small point, but you go on the other side and it, it still happens. Or it may be that as time goes on, uh, the universe expands and everything kind of gets very, uh, you know, you return to a vacuum state and that kind of reinitiates a big bang. And so you get this cyclical model or, you know, you got kind of oscillating universes. There's different ways that it plays out, but one of those scenarios or ways to get around a beginning is that, yes, there's this thing that looks like a beginning, but it really just plays out as part of a bigger sequence of how the, how the, how the stuff of our universe has behaved throughout this infinite amount of time. Mm. That, that's one way of looking at it. Okay. And then another way of looking at it is kind of what Hawking and Krauss and Vilenkin and, uh, you know, really Krauss's ideas are Vilenkin's put into right. Um, and that is the idea that when you when you trace our uh, the history of our universe back, yes, you do get to a place where there's a boundary, there's a past boundary, but uh, there's something that that brings our universe into existence. And, and and it's not a god, you know, and that's what they're saying. But it really it it you end up with the laws of physics. And so it, if you trace how that works. You go back and you've got these laws of physics. And then even before there's any sort of space, time, matter, energy, or anything that we would call stuff, there are these laws of physics that govern how things behave. And these laws of physics will pop things into existence. And so so you end up with, instead of the, the physical stuff of the universe being eternal, it's the laws that govern the universe or what are eternal. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, given the way quantum vacuum works in our universe things can pop into and out of existence and so our universe is just one of those things that the quantum vacuum this laws of physics have popped into existence and uh, mm. you know there's there's a recognition in that that our universe the physical stuff of our universe needs a cause but it's now anchored it into these laws of physics uh you know so it's kind of a uh not a, it's not a it's not a not a matter it's more mathematics if you will kind of there's this thing that exists that can bring universes into existence and that's where a lot of the way uh Krauss did that got a lot of pushback because those laws of physics aren't nothing in the way we're talking about when we're talking about ex nihilo right right the i think it was uh Vilenkin who had said um in one of his books or papers where he conceded he said uh he he was wondering about the the mathematical resonance of the of the universe, and he said that that we know that mathematics, that mind is the medium of mathematics, 
and he, he, he asked the question but doesn't concede, but he said, does this mean that mind predates the universe? And uh, it's, it's a fascinating question because when we're talking about cosmogony, the origin questions of our universe, uh, God always sticks his foot in the door, doesn't he? Barashit barat Elohim et hashemayim va'et ha'aretz always comes up. Genesis 1.1. Uh, that's the Hebrew, if I'm remembering it correctly from my uh, exegetical class. But uh, I think uh, I would attribute the popularity uh, of, of, of this uh, standard Big Bang cosmology model being likened to Genesis, maybe perhaps by Robert Jastrow, who has that famous quote that, uh, you know, there's a band of theologians that have been sitting at the top of the mountain waiting for the scientists to come around and recognize what they've known for centuries, right? But uh, what do you think, Jeff, of, um, I know it's been over, it's been almost a century now, um, and every time I get into these discussions, I, I hear uh, Georges Lemaitre and his, his cautionary uh, exhortation to the Pope, hey, let's not be too excited about uh, wedding Genesis to, to Big Bang cosmology because in his, in his mind that the science is going to change. So let's not, let's not wed too closely what, uh, what we've discovered here, what we think we've discovered. Uh, what do you think of Lemaitre's cautionary exhortation to the Pope? Is that applicable today or can we speak more solidly about there being a beginning than when Lemaitre was looking at things 100 years ago? Well, I, I think we can speak more confidently simply because we've had a lot more time to study it. I mean, really, the idea of studying a beginning to the universe, uh, that wasn't even a topic of science before the, the start of the 1900s. Uh, mm. that, that was how revolutionary Einstein's general theory of relativity was, is that prior to that, space and time were just these absolute entities that things happened within and they were, they were unchanging. And when Einstein came along and proposed his general theory of relativity, which was a philosophical and mathematical fiat, I mean, it was just incredible that he came up with when you think about what he's doing there, mm-hmm. but it brought into the scientific discussion, this idea that space and time are dynamic. They can stretch, they can expand, they can compress, they could have a beginning, they could have an end. That just wasn't even a scientific possibility even almost before mm-hmm. Einstein proposed that. And so now we can ask the question, given that general relativity describes our universe, what's the best what, – what, is there a beginning or isn't there? So uh, in some sense, you know, I, I mean, I agree with uh, Lemaitre in that we need to be careful of wedding our, dis- or our, our uh, interpretations of Genesis too tightly with any specific interpretation of science. But I do think we can ask the question, hey, given everything that we've learned and what we've done and how this has played out, what seems to be the case of is there a beginning or not? Uh, you know, I, I you one of the things that I found fascinating as I went and looked at this is, you know, you can say, all right, I'm just going to stick to today. And what do we know today? And uh, you know, whether there's a beginning, well, you've got Big Bang cosmology, but does inflation change that? And well, you've got this thing of quantum gravity and right where you need general relativity to be true to show that there's a beginning is exactly the place we expect it to break down. And so without quantum gravity, we can't answer this question. And it becomes very muddied and complicated if you just stay there. But partially due to a challenge somebody gave me about quantum gravity and how that got rid of a beginning, it forced me to step back and say, all right, let's take, let me, in, the, in essence, I ended up taking a little bit bigger picture look at that and recognize, you know what, 
From the start of the 1900s, scientists have been putting out models that say there's no beginning throughout that time. And it seems like the universe keeps pushing us back and say, okay, yeah, you've got a model that there's no beginning, but it doesn't match. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And that to me provides a, a kind of a cumulative case that there's a very strong evidence for a beginning. So mm. I don't think it's the sort of thing you can say, oh, yes, we've got the explanation for the beginning. But what I do think you can say is the evidence for a beginning is a lot stronger today than it was 100 years ago. And it seems like as we continue to make discoveries, as we not the initial discovery that often is used or tends to point away from the beginning. But when we really get in and dig in, it's like, oh, no, this really does affirm what the Bible has been saying all along. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a pretty strong case you can make for a beginning. Yeah. I've heard it said that, uh, I don't know if this is true, one of those uh, internet things or one of those uh, urban legends, but uh, it was said that Einstein didn't wear matching socks sometimes. Uh, we know he had some hair issues, um, but uh, but I, I don't know about the socks. I don't know if that's true. But you can imagine, though, let's just imagine that it's true, that I'm not sure Einstein was too worried about his hair or his socks, given the fact of what you just said, Jeff, how radical this idea was to the physicists and scientists of the time, that the universe was moving. Um, and then that's where I think if I'm, if I'm understanding the history of this correctly, that Einstein wanted to put in his little Lambda to like, like a, like a handbrake, like I'm going to, I'm going to hold the universe in position. I'm going to, I'm going to account for why the universe is, should, should still be static, right? Uh, that, that he's, he's introduced this term to try to like a parking brake for the universe. I don't want it to move. And so I'm going to kind of cheat here, but he, it's what he calls his greatest blunder, but now, is it true? I've I've heard this, and I'm not as technically knowledgeable about it. It it's somehow that Einstein, even when he messes up, he finds things. I don't know how he does this. And this uh, this lambda, this little insertion of I don't want the universe to move, turns out to be something very special in terms of what we know about the universe today. Correct? Did I get that right? Do you think am I even close? To- well, well, it is. <laughs> and you know, if if I can kind of just give a little bit of a bigger yeah kind of outline how big of a deal that was, Uh, you know, that uh, part of the reason why scientists were comfortable with a static universe is that's the one that's stable, that can be eternal. Mm. Um, And what ultimately drove Einstein, or or the idea that drove Einstein to developing general relativity was actually a recognition that our understanding of physics at the time, and granted, physics at the time consisted of electromagnetism and gravity. Those were the only two mm-hmm. things we knew about. So you got Newton and Maxwell are the, are the two prominent theories that were there at the time. Right. And he recognized that as you move through the universe, how you how things changed as you moved according to Newton didn't line up with how things changed as you moved according to Maxwell. And so you could actually, the the laws of physics changed as you move through the universe. And it was that, that recognition, that uh, oddity was what said, he said, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. The laws of physics ought to be the same throughout the universe. Yeah. Which is interesting because I find that a very biblical idea. Yeah. But it was this philosophical idea that the laws of physics ought to be constant. And so as he started working it out, where you say, all right, as things, as you have symmetry in the laws of physics, 
under constant velocity, that's where you get special relativity. And then as you have symmetry under physics, under, under acceleration, that's where you get general relativity. And so Mm -hmm. uh, it was ultimately this idea that the laws of physics ought to be the same throughout the universe is what drove him to develop the, the, the special and general relativity. And uh, as he looked at general relativity, they're just differential and integral equations there. And as you start to solve those, what he recognized was that the the generic solutions to these equations were a universe that was either expanding or contracting. Hmm. Now, what I think Einstein was doing, and again, I, I'm not, I, I don't get to go back to the early 1900s and ask right. him this question, but what I right. think is going on is like, hey, we know scientifically that the universe is static and unchanging. That's what history has shown us. And so what if, if these are the equations, what do I do to get a static and unchanging universe? And so he effectively introduced the constant, you know, like I said, these are differential and integral equations. And if you work with those, you know, there are these constants floating around. And so he effectively just chose one to have a specific value to get a static universe. Lo and behold, about 15 years later, uh, Edwin Hubble was out measuring these island universes, uh, showed that they were actually moving away from us and coupled with the redshift, they were able to measure distance, and lo and behold, found that the universe was expanding. And so that's that's about the time where Einstein went in and called it his greatest blunder, in part because if he had trusted his equations, he could have predicted that the universe was dynamic. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't know whether it was a blunder in saying, "Oh, it ought to be static." Or a blunder and saying, "Hey, I could have made an even bigger prediction." Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. Well, he 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 just about he was like he reminds me that 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 pivotal moment, uh, however it unfolded, reminds me of Johannes Kepler coming this close to get to, to getting gravity uh, with his ellipses and and the planetary laws that uh, Newton later uh, uh, sort of discovered. Um, but you know, you you mentioned Edward Hubble. Uh, on Mount Wilson with a 100-inch Hooker telescope, and he makes this wonderful discovery uh, looking at actually looking at some uh, some plates, and he's looking at Andromeda, and he sees a, a, a variable star, and there's that famous plate with a VAR exclamation point, and uh, that confirmed to him um, the that Andromeda and all the other Kantian island universes are, were actually island universes and not nebulae in our own galaxy. And Hubble's book is sitting on my shelf. I want to read it, The Realm of the Nebulae. I just want to go through and see what his mind was going through as he was doing this. But, uh, you know, he had that famous debate with Harlow Shapley that Shapley believed that all these galaxies that we know to be galaxies now were just uh, sort of clouds in our universe. And uh, I I remember reading uh, for my book research, uh, reading the letter. Or reading Shapley saying that Hubble had sent him a letter, said he found a variable star in Andromeda, so he knew Andromeda was a galaxy, and, and Shapley is believed to have said, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. <laughs> um, but, and 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 it, it, it's fascinating, though, Jeff, because, you know, you, you talk about this, I, I don't know if there's anything in modern conceptual times for our audience to put their minds to about how radical this would be. Uh, to un- to understand that the, these how how frightening it would be. There's a actually uh, there's a story about um, Hubble talking to the English poet Edith Sitwell. I don't know if Hubble was in England or if she was here visiting, but Hubble showed her some of the gra- photographic plates from the Hooker Telescope uh, and told her these were galaxies and these were enormous things like the Milky Way. And her response was, "How terrifying!" And I, I think a lot of that 
was and Arthur Eddington when he discovered that the universe, this idea of a universe with a beginning, this idea of a, of a universe with with an expansion rate and a beginning, he said uh, he's famously quoted as saying the idea of a be, of a beginning horrified him or or disgusted him or some he was repulsed by the idea. Um, but here we have today we have Sean Carroll. I know he's he's come up with he in a in a debate with Bill Craig back in uh, New Orleans. I think it was 2012. Uh, Dr. Carroll came up with. Um, he said he did an internet search, took him about 30 minutes to find 17 or 13 or 17 eternal models. Now, he's not saying any of these are necessarily correct, but I thought it was interesting in at that point in the debate where, where Carol was, was essentially hanging on this idea that there is a possibility that there are models out there that we can construct that are, quote, eternal. And I thought that was really unusual. Just, it just kind of struck me that that word seems a little out of place in cosmology, it seems more like a theological term, but it seems like the science is forced to try to come conceptualize this idea of something always existing, something eternal. Um, do you find how much of an emphasis? What does eternal e- eternal mean uh, from a scientific astrophysical perspective? Is that kind of are we? Is it like a nothing thing? Is this a term that is this more scientific that has? theological overtones it sounds theological but it's actually a scientific term what what is meant by an eternal model of the universe so my understanding and i think what a what an eternal model means is that uh you know you know whatever time we are here i mean there's no absolute time we can put on we can say time relative to something but whatever time we put here Basically, what an eternal model says is that as T grows increasingly negative, it never encounters a boundary. Mm. So it just, you know, from T from past infinity to plus infinity, that's what an eternal universe would be. So, um, you know, that has a little different connotation than than what it does in Christianity. Uh, you know, Christianity eternal has, you know, timeless, there is no beginning, there is no end that has that. So, so there's a similarity there. But at least one key feature or one reason why that's important is because if there's a beginning, there's something outside that needs to bring it into existence. And there's this violation of that symmetry in time, because anytime mm. you have you know, something that has existed for eternity, uh, where time from past infinity to to, pre- or to future infinity are all filled, you now have that symmetry in time. And that's, that's a good thing from a physics perspective. You know, and so this is, you know, I guess it goes back to the point where discussion we were having earlier, that it's both a scientific and a philosophical discussion. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not always clear when you're having a discussion with somebody, which it is, because yeah. you couch it in either term. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I your book helped me to understand more clearly. I've always kind of held this myself that there is always overlap. I think it's a tendency in in, in our modern era to sort and classify. Nothing wrong with classification of things for sure, but but this idea that this is walled off from this and science has has definitively shown that we don't need God for the beginning of the universe. These are kind of artificial walls, but really when you talk about things, you really need to define your terms and understand conceptually what's going on here. I, I I've always seen the word eternity or uh, infinity uh, utilized, and I've always been fascinated by this. Uh, it, 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 it reminds me as a layperson uh, that uh, what uh, Romans says, that uh, you know, when, when we look at the created order, we are reminded of God's invisible attributes. And here, center stage is this concept of something existing forever or something going on forever. So that is a, that is a, a neat overlap and I think a good point of uh, a discussion for people in, in that capacity. What, um, 
in your book, you talk about, uh, let me see if I can remember. I will edit this. Um, um, the mul- That's it. I, I didn't want to forget talking about this. A um, couple of distinctions to make some ideas that, that are prop- popular in, in, in the popular mind. Uh, one is the multiverse. And um, I know you've, you've written a book called Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? And uh, the other one is, and it's distinct, but there's some similarities, but there's also some overlap. Uh, Sean Carroll has, has popularized this again with Something, Something Deeply Hidden, his book that just came out uh, not too long ago, where he's uh, basically uh, advocating for Hugh Everett's many worlds, a, a sort of quantum uh, reality where things phase in and out of existence and that uh, the implications, though Carroll doesn't really spend too much time talking about the implications. He said, I don't really worry about it. But the implications are in either a multiverse or many worlds uh, that there are many doppelgangers of us, uh, that, that, that you and I are switched positions. I'm the astrophysicist and you're the journalist uh, in some other multi-world or, uh, you know, I'm a woman or, you know, I was born to another family or I'm a king in Poland somewhere, you know, in another universe. Uh, the, the implications of these things. But, Jeff, tell us a little bit, you know, briefly what – Multiverse is what uh, many worlds are, differences, and why, why these don't sufficiently avoid a beginning. Yeah, I find the multiverse a very fascinating topic uh, in large for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was is that when you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, where I first started getting serious, you know, that's when I was studying physics in high school, started in college and graduate school, and uh, the idea was, you know, th- this universe we live in, that this is all there is. And so anything beyond this universe is supernatural in some sense. Well, mm. multiverse comes along and now it takes the stuff beyond our universe and makes it natural somehow. And I kind of, yeah, I, I didn't write it down anywhere, but I remember thinking in my mind, this is going to be used to take things that are outside our universe and declare them natural, if you will. And lo and behold, that's kind of what has happened. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to be too snarky in that because there's a point where you say okay this is stuff that we can just still describe with all the mathematics and everything that goes on in our universe and so it's it's a little fuzzier than that but you know just there's this idea behind the multiverse or the whole driving force behind the multiverse is there's some entity that we call our universe and that's actually a relatively hard thing to define um I, you know i like to define it just as the maximum amount of stuff that can ever influence life here on earth or or stuff here on earth and because the big bang was about 14 billion years ago and the speed of light is constant there's a limit to how large of a region that can be called that the observable universe and then the multiverse is just anything beyond that uh it could be a whole lot more of the same stuff beyond you know kind of the star wars type scenario a long time ago in a galaxy far far away yeah. type thing or it could be something where the laws of physics are entirely different. It's kind of like the Narnia, you know, the land between worlds uh, picture in my mind. Um, and given the way our physics has developed, you can kind of look at that differently. So, so the, you know, again, just the multiverse is whatever our universe is, there's more out there beyond that. And if there's more out there beyond that, then now you have the question of, if even if our universe has a beginning, does the, exi- the does the physical realm have a beginning? So whatever it is that produced our universe could be eternal, and so what we thought was a fundamental beginning really isn't that big of a beginning, you know. So these are the types of philosophical and theological questions that arise from that. But when you're talking about the multiverse, you really 
I love Max Tegmark had a great categorization of yeah. multiverses. Yeah. He has one, which is just the, 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 you know, take our observable universe, move out to the edge of it. And it looks basically the same, you know, it's just, we can't see it, but it's all really more of the same stuff. Um, inflation gives us that kind of multiverse without, I mean, yeah, that's just a default prediction or default result of inflation is that you get that kind of multiverse. Uh, typically, when people are talking about multiverses, though, there are these other bubbles where you've got our universe somehow is contained within this bubble. And there are other universes where speed of light might be greater. The dimensionality might be different. Gravity might not exist. Any sort of thing like that. And then you've got uh, this other kind of multiverse, which, uh, you know, it all dates me because all the stuff that I talk about was back in the 80s and 90s. But <laughs> you've got the kind of uh, back to the future type multiverse where, you know, Marty McFly goes back, changes history, and now the timeline is different. It's yeah, it's yeah. a quantum mechanical universe, if you mm-hmm. will. And that's where, uh, you know, Sean Carroll's uh, many worlds type uh, way of looking at things comes into play. And then there's kind of, I call it a, a fourth kind of catch all, any other kind of multiverse, but it really relates to mathematics behaving differently is kind of the level four. And so the level one, I find a, you know, we almost certainly live in a level one multiverse. There's more stuff out there than we're ever going to be able to measure. Mm-hmm. The level two kind of falls out of the way inflation works. The level three depend, you know, has a quantum mechanical nature to it. And so when you're talking about what are the implications of the different multiverses, you have to kind of ask what kind of multiverse are you talking about? Because the inflationary multiverse, yeah, it produces all sorts of different universes where the the laws of physics may have a different low energy manifestation, but the best we can determine that inflationary multiverse still has a beginning to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you're talking about the quantum mechanical one, that's a different ball of wax Uh, And the hard part about that is that multiverse relies on a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics, but I can show you 17 different interpretations of quantum mechanics. In fact, I don't even have to show you just go look at the wiki page and there's, there's all these different interpretations of quantum mechanics and there's no, here's my interpretation of general relativity or here's my interpretation of Newtonian dynamics. Yeah. Those tell you how reality works. Whereas with quantum mechanics, we can make really precise predictions but the mechanism behind it is something we can't tell. And so you open all these different interpretations. Sean Carroll's free to go and say, hey, I like the many worlds interpretation. But I can go along and say, hey, I like the Copenhagen interpretation. And both of us get identical predictions for what we're going to see, at least at this point in time. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens... He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Good Heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry, including having our staff speak at your church, visit watchman.org. That's Watchman. Org for more information and resources on apologetics, world religions, cults, and other non-Christian ideologies and spiritual practices. That's watchman.org.